Well, hey everyone, and welcome to Ridge Church Online. My name is Dan. I'm one of the pastors here, and I'm so glad you're joining in today. Whether you're watching on a Sunday morning with us live, whether you're watching a little bit later on, whether you're at home or on the road or catching up on the podcast, whatever it looks like for you to be jumping in today, we just want to welcome you here. Like I said, my name's Dan, and, and I serve here as one of the pastors, and it's so good to be together. We're back in our series called Sovereign, where we're looking at the book of Exodus, the second book in the Bible, this story of Moses, this guy who was in Egypt, left Egypt, now is going to be called back to Egypt, and this story of the Israelite people, this people who God loves, who God's called, who God's going to lead out of slavery and oppression. It's this amazing story about Moses and about Israel and about Egypt, and it's this epic narrative, but really, this is a story about God. This is a story about God and what he is doing and how he is shaping the entire story, because God is shaping the story. He's shaping the story of Moses. He's shaping the story of Israel. And the reason we're doing this series and calling it Sovereign is because we believe that God in his sovereignty, in his rule and reign over everything that he has made, is shaping our story too. He's shaping your story as an individual. He's shaping our story as Ridge Church or the church or the followers of Jesus in Maple Ridge, BC or wherever you are listening from. What's amazing about this is that God in his sovereignty doesn't do it from a distance. He steps in. This is a story, and as we're going to look at today, of God leaning in, of coming close. We love and believe in a triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And if God operates and exists in relationship, so too is his sovereignty and lordship over all creation done in the context of relationship with Moses, with Israel, and with us. God is shaping the story. And when I say that God is shaping the story, maybe you think about how your story's been shaped, whether you call that a testimony, whether you call that your journey of faith, whether you just call that your life, whatever it looks like, we all have a story and it's all been shaped. And my question for you this morning is what's shaped you? You know, I I think about that question and it's really simple for me. I start to think about, you know, my family of origin. I think about my mom, Sue, and my dad, Rob, and, and the house I grew up in and the bedroom I lived in until I was 17 years old and, and all these different factors about what it looked like for me to grow up. I think about my experience. I think about my elementary school, Aberdeen Elementary. I think about my high school, South Cam. I think about all these places and people and events that have shaped me. Because that's how life goes. These big experiences, these pinnacle moments where we learn something about ourselves or somebody spoke something over us that inspired us to take on the current vocation or calling we have in our lives or pressed us down and hurt us in a way that still impacts us today. Here's the challenge that we're going to see in the story of Moses today, but I think is also true for you and I. No matter who we are, no matter where we come from, male or female, young or old, Christian or just exploring faith, not every piece of what has shaped us is something we want to think about. But here's the reality. Our present has been shaped by our past. Our present has been shaped by our past. I remember as we're coming up to Halloween, um, I have this weird thing where I don't like costumes. It's, it's not like a thing I get offended by or anything like that. I just don't like costumes. And I remember back when I was in grade five or six, or I can't quite remember when, dressing up for Halloween was like the biggest deal ever. My mom made these amazing costumes. And this one year, I wanted to go as, because it was popular, that was the age and the time and the space, I wanted to go as Captain Jack Sparrow from Pirates of the Caribbean. And it was this amazing costume. My mom worked so hard on it. It was so cool. But I showed up at school. And what I realized is that I had not got the memo that every other middle school kid had got, that we were now too old and too cool to wear costumes to school. And I remember feeling so embarrassed and so ashamed and so like I've screwed up and nobody likes me and everybody's laughing at me because I'm the one kid wearing a costume that's not like kind of cool or whatever. I'm, I'm over the top. I'm too much. I, I can't do this. And so ever since then, I hate the idea of wearing a Halloween costume, not, not for any major reason, just because I remember feeling ashamed and embarrassed. See, this event in my past has shaped how I now operate today. And that's just a little story. But what we're going to see in the life of Moses is exactly that. 
Our present has been shaped by our past for better or for worse. And whether or not you like it, that is the truth. And I think about that in terms of the good things, right? Many of you watching this were born into a family who taught you about Jesus, who taught you about the love of God and brought you to church on Sundays and brought you to an Awana or a youth group or something like that. And that has shaped and formed you into a person who believes in God today. There's people who have showed you what it looks like to be a hard worker. I think of my own dad who just the other day was helping me change my tires over to winter tires and the work ethic and what I learned from him about what it means to be someone who serves other people well. We've been shaped by the people and what they've given us. Maybe you discovered your passion. Maybe a coach or a teacher or a youth group leader or a youth pastor, whoever it may be, spoke into your life something that has shaped and formed what you're passionate about and how you live today. But as much as those things are true with the great parts of our lives, they're true with the most broken parts of our lives as well, aren't they? The divorce of parents, the death or sickness of a loved one, these moments in our life, maybe it was a major shift in your family's socioeconomic position. Maybe for a long time your family was comfortable financially and then all of a sudden they weren't. Maybe, and I pray and hope that this would not be true, but maybe part of your story is abuse. When you were young, physically or emotionally or sexually, someone took advantage of you and hurt you. And those things have shaped us. Those things have made their way into our lives in such a way that they now affect our present. They affect how we operate with the world. And whether or not we want to think about it, they're there. Even if they live in our subconscious where we've buried them far away from having to think about or feel the initial pain of those things, they're there. They affect us. But we've done what any self-respecting person should do, right? We've gotten over it. We've moved on, we've let it go, we find new friends. We internally decide that that particular family member who offended me or hurt me, they're just a Christmas time family member. I don't interact with them, I don't care about how they are. There's tension whenever we're together, so I'll just avoid them or move to a new town or not whatever it may be. We, we separate, we bury, we push down our emotions, we push down our traumas as far down as we possibly can because we don't want to admit that our past has shaped us. That the most broken and sensitive parts of our story aren't just in the past, they're affecting our present. Psychologists describe something called dissociative amnesia which with major trauma or even minor trauma is the ability of the human mind to push something deep into our subconscious where you cannot even remember the trauma or the hurt that's been experienced. It's this heartbreaking reality where we do whatever we can to forget because it hurts too much to remember. And whether that's in a very major way, that's a mental kind of condition that, that somebody's dealing with, or, or whether it's just the basic stuff of life, we just want to bury it. I don't want to deal with that. I don't want to think about that. I want to move on. I don't want to feel the pain of that. It hurts too bad. We convince ourselves that something is in the past. It doesn't bear repeating. It doesn't need reflection. It doesn't need consideration. It doesn't need confessing. It doesn't need someone to pray for me in it. I just want to move past it. I don't want to talk about it. It is the emotional and spiritual equivalent of ignoring a broken bone by trying to take some more ibuprofen. But as the psychologist Carl Jung said, until you make the unconscious conscious, it will direct your life and you will call it fate. Until we start to dig into the parts of our stories that may hurt but have affected us deeply, we will not be able to move forward because sometimes Potentially, even most of the time, we can't get over it. We can't suck it up. Because even if you've convinced yourself that that's what you have done, it's there. It's operating in your subconscious at a brain chemistry level, affecting the decisions you make and the way you engage in your marriage or in your workplace or with God. There are things that exist that we must go back to. A wound requires healing. A broken bone needs a cast. A bad flu needs the right combination of medicine and rest and time to recover. We cannot just take more ibuprofen for our pain. 
We need to press in as painful as it may be. And as much as you and I do not want to go there, what God calls us to is to go back so that we can go forward. It's to go back so that we can go forward, to not be trapped and enslaved to our past. Whether that's sins we've done or sins that have been done against us, we don't have to remain enslaved to them. And that's what we'll see in this passage. Because Moses... He ran away from his past. He ran away from Egypt. He ran away from Pharaoh. For 40 years, he had been running. He'd ran away from Egypt with all its power and privilege and benefits that had come from that and given him a comfortable life. But then something happened, and you'll remember it from a couple weeks ago. He grasped for power and leadership, and in a desire to do right, in a desire to do justice, he'd murdered someone. And he'd felt that sin and he'd felt that weight. And he said, I'm just going to put this behind me. I'm going to bury that body in sand and I don't have to think about it anymore. But what happened the next day? Here's what it says in Exodus chapter 2, which Pastor Daniel spoke so well on a couple weeks ago. Exodus chapter 2, starting in verse 14. He sees these Israelites, these Hebrew people. And he tells them, stop fighting, stop arguing, let me lead you, trust me, I've got your best interest in mind. And they look and they say, who made you a commander and a judge over us? Are you going to kill me like you killed the Egyptian? And then Moses became what? Afraid. And he thought, what I did is certainly known. The body and the baggage that I tried to bury in the sand is coming back to bite me. I can't keep it behind me. I can't pretend like it didn't happen because it did. When Pharaoh heard about this, verse 15, he tried to kill Moses. But Moses fled from Pharaoh and went to live in the land of Midian. And for the last couple of weeks, we've looked at how God has met him there. But through the last 40 years, Moses has been on the run. Moses has been doing whatever he can to escape his past. And I wonder, 40 years out, how much did Moses even remember? How much did he remember from that time? How much has he blocked out? How much of his history has he put on the back burner and claimed he's moved on? I wonder if he's sitting at a meal with friends in Midian or sitting with his family and somebody asks, oh, well, where, where'd you grow up? Or what was your childhood like? And he goes, I don't talk about it. He goes, I don't talk about Egypt. That's, that's in the past. It's, it's old news. It's ancient history. It doesn't matter anymore. I don't want to talk about it. But as we read our text today, as Moses interacts with Yahweh's call on him to return to the place of his pain, to return to Egypt, we're going to see the pain with which Moses responds, that 40 years out, that pain is still very much there. We're going to hop into Exodus chapter 4, where we'll be today. So if you've got your Bibles, you can flip there. You can read along on the screen. Here's what it says. Moses answered God, what if they don't believe me and they will not obey me, but they will say the Lord did not appear to you? Moses, in what feels like such a human and natural response, even four decades later, is responding to God and something has clicked. Something has been set off in his soul. Something has been triggered where he's going, God, you're calling me to go back to the place of my pain, but I'm telling you, I tried to lead these people. I tried to do the right thing and they didn't want me. It didn't work. They didn't listen. They didn't want the kind of leadership I was going to bring. They didn't want me to tell them what to do. So how could I go back? Because it's going to be the same thing. And 40 years out, even though Moses has maybe ignored it or pushed it to the side or moved it to his subconscious, it's there that when God calls him back, he says, I can't do it. I can't do it because they're not going to listen. I wonder if he heard the voices of those Hebrew men. Who made you judge over us? Those voices ringing out in his head, forming and shaping him, whether he wanted them to or not. And we get the same way, don't we? Something that can be a passive comment that someone says to us, whether it's a spouse or a friend or a coworker, and all of a sudden we fly off the handle. How could you say that? A gentle criticism and we freak out because how could someone be that upset about this thing? Somebody makes a joke and we get so offended because well, how could you joke about that thing? Because deep down we have pain and hurt that we don't want to deal with, but we're flying off the handle at people we care about because we've never dealt with those things. How dare you say that to me? How dare you say that to me? And the person's like, well, I don't even know. What did I say? Why are you offended? What's, what, what's the big deal? And we can't even explain it. 
few weeks ago, I, I was driving with Jaleesa in the car and she gave me this gentle, kind of fair, kind criticism. Hey, here's something I see. I'd appreciate if you could work on it. It wasn't mean. It wasn't mean spirited. It wasn't uncalled for. And, and I just flew off the handle and I was like, how could you say that to me? Why don't you think I'm good enough? You're, you're not pleased with me. You think I suck. You think all these things. And I created this narrative in my head that if I'm honest, was entirely in my own head. And the more I'm willing to actually look into it, the more I go back and I'm a scared 13-year-old kid who didn't make a basketball team, who was the only kid who got cut, and who decided right then, I'm not enough and nobody wants me. And so a gentle criticism from the person who loves and knows me the most all of a sudden becomes, yet another person doesn't want me. It's exactly like I thought. It's built into my subconscious and we fly off the handle at people that we love. And Moses in this moment, I wonder if he was experiencing that same thing. That anxiety in his stomach or that tightness in his chest that you might feel or that I might feel. Or somebody says something that hits on that trigger point, that pressure point, that pain point of our history that thing we feel in our bones that, that maybe has been on a low level and it's fine. We just don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. We just don't talk about it. But it's there and we know it. And now God is saying, I want you to go back. I want you to go back so that you can go forward because I don't want you to run away. I want you to experience true freedom. But Moses is not ready for that. But here the beauty of God in his grace and his kindness and his sovereignty shapes Moses's story from past, present, and now future. He has shaped our lives in the good, the bad, and the ugly. Your past, God has shaped, and he is calling you potentially to go back and dig into the hurt that's there, that you might be able to move forward. He meets Moses in this question, in this pain, in this anxiety, in this fear, not with anger, not with condemnation, not with contempt or a call to suck it up or be a man or get over it. It happened years ago. Here is the beautiful truth of the gospel that I want you to cling to as you listen to this today. It's not fancy words. It doesn't rhyme. It's, it's just a really simple statement. God loves people with emotional baggage. And God calls people with emotional baggage. I, I know it might seem like a simple, yeah, obvious statement, but here's the thing. Your emotional baggage does not mean you're not loved by God. Your emotional baggage does not mean God does not want to use you for amazing things in your life, in your neighborhood, in your community, in your family, in this church. Look how God responds to Moses. Verse 2. The Lord asked Moses, what's in your hand? A staff, Moses replied. Throw it on the ground, God said. So Moses threw it on the ground and it became a snake and he ran from it, which is what you should do if you see a snake. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail, which is the wrong end of a snake to grab. So he stretched out his hand and he caught it and became a staff in his hand once more. This will take place, God continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And so he put his hand inside his cloak. When he took it out, his hand was diseased. It resembled snow. Put your hand back in your cloak, God said. So he put it back in his cloak, and when he took it out, again, it become clean like the rest of his skin. Verse 8, and if they do not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they might believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even the two signs, or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile, the river, the delta, this incredible huge um, river in Egypt, pour it on the dry ground, the water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. See, God meets Moses' fear and insecurity with signs and wonders. They're not magic tricks. They're not impressive feats. It's not God saying, look at the cool thing I can do to make people follow you. Look at how awesome I can make you look, Moses. No, they're very specific things that God brings into Moses' life. That Moses would be able to remember and know that God spoke to him and give evidence of how God spoke to him when he goes back to his people. A quick word on each. First of all, the snake. Moses puts his staff on the ground and it becomes a snake and he does what any normal, sane, logical person does when they see a snake. They get away. I don't care if it is like a gigantic anaconda cobra and like snakes on a plane mode or if it's like a three-inch garter snake. 
I don't like snakes. They're creepy. They sketch me out. I remember we were hiking in Oregon one time and I almost stepped on a snake and I freaked out and it was a whole half hour thing. I don't like snakes. So I get what Moses was doing here. I get why he ran away. Snakes are scary. And commentators note, though, that there's no indication that this snake is like the same snake as Genesis 3. And our minds might want to make that connection and go, oh, is this the snake that talked to Eve and God is showing Moses this? And, and, and that's just not really in the text, even though our minds might try to make that connection. But what is worth noticing about this sign and this wonder is the culture in which Moses lived, where snakes were really important. Here's what Goran Larsson, a Swedish theologian, writes about the cobra or the snake in Egyptian culture where Moses was called back to. The cobra, he writes, represented in particular the national god of lower Egypt and was the foremost symbol of Pharaoh. Pharaoh, the guy who wanted to kill Moses and was holding the Hebrews captive, carrying on. Reflecting Pharaoh's claim to divine royalty, sovereignty, and power. It constantly appears on his crown or helmet. We have an image right here I want to show you really quickly. Look, you can see that's the like classic Egyptian pharaoh. We see that all the time, Halloween costumes, whatever. What do you notice on the head? It's a snake. It's the sign of what the pharaoh claimed is his divinity, his ability to consider himself a god carrying on. It constantly appears on the pharaoh's crown or helmet. His scepter was a stylized cobra. Even the Egyptian gods are depicted frequently with scepters in the form of snakes. It's safe for us to assume as the reader that Yahweh's transformation from a rod to a snake is aimed at Egypt and pharaoh's alleged power, almost as if to say, pharaoh has no power here. All the power and might and claimed divinity and sovereignty that Pharaoh says he has over that nation, over you, Moses, over this land, over the Hebrew people is a magic trick to God. It's nothing. It's child's play. Grab that snake by the tail. It's a garter snake. It's a two-foot insignificant nothingness in comparison to the power and the might of Yahweh. Moses, Pharaoh's got no power on me. Pharaoh's got nothing. It's a joke. It's a tiny little wonder for God to do to demonstrate his power over Egypt and its gods and its claim of sovereignty. Yahweh says, no, no, no. They've got nothing on me. But then God gives Moses a second sign, and this time it gets a little more personal. It's not just a staff Moses is holding, it's Moses' own hand. He says, put it in your cloak and take it out. It's disease, it's white as snow, it has leprosy. And in that era, at that time, you can't go to the ER and wait for five hours and get it checked out. You can't go online and Google what kind of tea should I drink to get rid of this. You can't, you know, put coconut oil on it and that's going to make it okay. It was a time that this skin condition is not a slight inconvenience. It's not a little thing, it's a death sentence. And some commentators point out that at that time in history, when most historians would think Moses was kind of operating in the Egyptian nation, was right around the same time all of Egypt's top professors, scholars, doctors, whatever, scientists, were trying to figure out how do we cure this. And so yet again, it's, it's Yahweh saying, the thing that Egypt can't do, the thing that Egypt claims, we have sovereignty, we can rule the world, we're important, they can't even do what Yahweh can do in one moment in a cloak. But isn't it interesting that God's second sign to Moses is not just a rod to a snake. It's not just what happens outside of Moses, but it happens to Moses. It's not just a healing and restoration of the world outside of Moses, but healing and restoration of Moses himself. Almost as if I wonder to show Moses that the power of God to heal pain was not limited to what happened outside him. It was not just about what happened out there. It was not just about healing this thing. It was not just about healing that thing. It was not just about get over your stuff, Moses, put it behind you, let's fix the rest of the world. It was about saying, Moses, there's brokenness in you. There's something hurting and broken and not right in you. And I'm telling you, I have the power to heal it. Here's what I want you to know today. God doesn't just use broken people. God heals them. God doesn't just use broken. He doesn't say, okay, you're broken, but let's get to work. He says, I will heal you. God is kind and near to the brokenhearted. And you today, my friend, can rest 
in that. And then finally, the Nile. One last huge boom type miracle. Okay, if number one doesn't work, number two doesn't work, check this out. It would end up actually becoming the first of the 10 plagues that God that Yahweh would bring about on Egypt so that Pharaoh would let his people go. The Nile was Egypt's economic powerhouse. It was everything to them. Their agricultural position, their economic position, their ability to remain in power the way that they were in power depended on the Nile Delta to be able to grow and harvest crops like no one else could in that area because of the fertile land it provided, which would not work if the Nile was blood. It is God saying, I don't just have power over Pharaoh. I don't just have power in Moses's life. I got power over everything because I made it. I'm the God over all creation. As Jonathan reminded us last week, God is Lord, God is sovereign, God is king over all creation. And we can celebrate and rejoice in that. And so God gives Moses these signs and is inviting him into a journey, not just to do something amazing for God, but to do something to redeem his own story. God is inviting Moses to have his story redeemed, to go back to the place where he failed, where he blew it, where he ran away from, where all that pain, all that hurt existed, and he wants to redeem it. And I think that's true for you and I today. God wants to redeem our stories. He doesn't just want us to ignore the past. He doesn't just want us to pretend like bad things didn't happen to us or because of us. He wants to heal and forgive and restore in those places. But the sad irony of Moses' response as we read on is this. Exodus 4, verse 10. Moses replies to the Lord, Please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. I can't talk good. (laughs) Moses is no longer blaming his past. Finally, after all the questions in chapter 3 and now chapter 4, we get to the root of the issue. He's not blaming trauma. He's not blaming Pharaoh. He's not blaming the Israelite people anymore. We finally have got to the root of the issue. And what's happening here? God is doing what the Holy Spirit does. He's being a counselor. People joke all the time about counselors being like, well, tell me about your father. Tell me about what it was like when you grew up. And and we joke about that. But the point of that, that the reason a counselor does that, if you take a counseling course, is not just because they're really interested in your parents. They're interested in how you came to the point where you believe and operate the way that you do. What God is doing with Moses here is getting to the issue beneath the issue. It's not just this Moses failed. It's not just that people didn't listen to Moses. It's not just that Moses messed up. It's this belief that Moses holds in his heart. I'm not enough. I'm not enough. I can't do it. This speech issue, and we don't know exactly what it is, whether it was a speech impediment or whether it was just nervousness or whatever it may be, Moses had determined in his heart That even if he's got a billion other reasons, that at the core of his heart, he believes he's not enough. That God can't really use him. That it doesn't matter if God can turn a rod into a snake, back into a rod. Can't, doesn't matter if God can heal his hand. Doesn't matter if God's going to do these things. with He's seen God do these wonders and he goes, well, that's pretty cool, God, but you don't know how messed up I am. You don't know how much of a failure I am. You don't know how bad I am. I can't do it. God, I, I just can't do this. And I wonder if you were to dig down deep, if you were to sit in stillness long enough to actually look at your life, would you be able to find those things? Would you realize that maybe you're not just an angry person because people around you are frustrating, but that you have built up walls for years and years because you don't want to deal with the fact that inside you are a hurting, scared child who feels like unless I scream, I'm not going to get my way. You're terrified of being let down. You are surrounded by a wall of sarcasm to deflect anyone actually asking how you really are. You are not just private. You're not just introverted. You're hiding your sin. You're ashamed by what you've done in the past. And so under the guise of, oh, I'm private, I just don't like to talk about that, I just don't like to bring it up, you've built a wall around yourself where you said, I can't confess my sin, I can't tell anyone what I've done, I can't tell anyone with what I struggle with then and now because it's been so long, how could I ever confess, what would people think of me? You're not just a workaholic. You're not just someone who has a hard time slowing down. You are terrified 
of the emotions that you might feel if you stopped for a day. You are terrified of the hurt and the pain and the insignificance you feel in your own life. And so you just keep pushing and I'm just going to work a little more and I'll make a little more money and I'll get a little more honored and I'll get a little more um, professionalism and I'll get a promotion and then I'll be okay. I just have to keep moving because if I stop, it hurts too much. But look at how God responds to Moses's cry of insufficiency. Exodus 4, 11 and 12, the Lord said to Moses, who placed the mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, Moses, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. My shortened version, Moses, it's not about you. It's not about you, Moses. It's about what I'm going to do through you, through your weakness, through your failures, through your insufficiencies. I will do something amazing. You know what's awesome here? God doesn't give Moses a pep talk. God doesn't like get down on his knees like, oh, Moses, you're okay, buddy. It's no big deal. You, you're fine. You're great at talking. You're doing awesome. Here's a participation ribbon. Everybody comes in first place. You're the best speaker I've ever heard. You're awesome, buddy. God doesn't do cheap self-esteem. In fact, he seems to be like, yeah, Moses, you're not great at talking, but I gave you that mouth. I gave you that mouth that is not good at talking. I'm telling you, I'm going to do something through your weakness. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 9 and 10. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. God spoke to me and said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul writes, I will gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, my failures, my inabilities, so that Christ's power may reside in me. I will take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulties for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am made strong. Do you hear what he's saying? Do you hear what God's saying to Moses and what Paul is saying to us? The place of the most pain and the most hurt and the most trauma and the most insufficiency that you are so insecure about that you have buried it in your subconscious might be the place that God most wants to use you. The thing that you are so ashamed of, that you are feeling it in your guts right now that you don't want anyone to know about, that you don't want your spouse to know about, that you don't want your best friend to know about, that you wish God didn't know about, but he does because he's sovereign. That might be the place and the area where God wants to work through your life. The place where you feel like a failure is the very place God wants to go. And my friend, if that is where you are today, you are in good company in the Bible. David the adulterer, the murderer, shows us how we lament and what it means to be broken over our sin and have a contrite spirit. If you read Psalm 51, Peter, the overconfident guy with anger issues who denies Jesus as Jesus goes towards the cross shows us how God can redeem and restore and use someone to lead who is just a complete screw-up. Paul, who wrote the verses we just read, shows us how somebody can be a puffed up, self-righteous, Christ-hating Pharisee and yet come to a place in their life where they say, I am the worst of sinners. May Jesus be glorified. You are in good company if you carry emotional baggage because God uses people who carry emotional baggage. You need to allow Jesus to redeem your story because it's in that place that we see God work. It's in that space that we see in the hurt, in the trauma, in the pain, we have to go back to go forward. But for some of us, including Moses, we just don't want to. Finally, we get to his final response to Yahweh as we read in Exodus 4.13. And this is Moses' kind of final pushback on Yahweh. And it's just really blunt and, and, and really sad. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. At the end of the day, Moses gets to the point where he's gut level honest. He gets past all his fear, all his insecurity, everything that he's been able to ask of God, everything that God's responded, everything that God showed him in these wonders, in these miracles. And Moses says, I just want to tap out. I, I, I just want to tap out. 
And, and here's the thing. We don't know if this is about fear or insecurity. We don't know if this is Moses still being stuck on something. We don't know exactly what Moses' emotional attitude in saying this is, but we know he's saying, I want to tap out. And here's the sad reality for some of you watching today. You have tapped out in your apprenticeship to Jesus. You have made the conscious decision or unconscious decision that to really follow Jesus any more than you currently are is too hard. It costs too much. It makes me feel too uncomfortable. It forces me to deal with sins that I don't really want to deal with. It forces me to lay down comfort that I don't really want to lay down. It forces me to to make sacrifices and take up my cross, as Jesus said, in a way that I don't really want to. I will follow Jesus as long as I feel okay about it. You have stopped at an intellectual understanding of who God is and considering that being enough to get into heaven when you die, have stopped and tapped out and said, that's as much as I want to follow Jesus. You have treated God like he deserves to give you a warm, fuzzy feeling and anything else is not an interest to you. I understand what God wants me to do. I'm just not interested in doing it. Here is God's word to those of us who would be stuck in this place today. Isaiah 29, 13, the prophet writes, The Lord said, These people approach me with their speeches, and they honor me with lip service, yet their hearts are far from me. Exodus 4, 14, what is God's response? The Lord's anger burned against Moses. This is what makes God angry. And it's really important we understand the difference here. This is where we see God get angry at Moses. We don't see him get angry at Moses' fear. We don't see him get angry at Moses' trauma. We don't see him get angry at Moses' questions or failures or shame. Psalm 34 tells us God is near to the brokenhearted. Psalm 9 tells us that God is a refuge to those who are oppressed. Psalm 147, God will bind up the broken and heal their wounds. God does not get angry at our brokenness or our hurt, but God gets angry at our disobedience and our outright rejection of the call to follow Jesus because it's belittling the power and call of God in your life, and that's what's frustrating Some of you are watching this and you have all the right information. You have all the right Christian activity. You have all the right theology. And you are willing to let the Holy Spirit work in your life where it's comfortable, where it makes you feel good, where it makes you feel like you're a good person. You're fine to do that. But the second the Holy Spirit starts to press on something and you go, I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. I don't really care if I treat my family terribly and have anger issues. I don't really care if I keep looking at pornography all the time. I don't really care that I'm doing that. I don't want God to touch that. I only want God to move in my life where I want him to move. I'm going to be in control of this. God's not allowed to touch that. God's not allowed to heal that. God's not allowed to tell me what to do. You've built God as your butler. Do a wonder here. Turn a rod into a snake. Make me feel better here. Give me a warm, fuzzy feeling. That is not who God is. God is not interested in being your butler. He is not interested in half-hearted, lukewarm followers of Jesus. Read the book of Revelation. Lukewarm followers get spit out. It's like this heartbreaking, terrible passage, and it's not a new problem. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy 3, 1 to 5. Know this, he writes. Hard times will come in the last days, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money. They will be boastful, proud, demeaning, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, unloving, irreconcilable, slanderers, or in more Western language, gossips. Without self-control, they'll be brutal. Without love for what is good, they'll be traitors. They'll be reckless. They'll be conceited. They'll be lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. What do you notice about that list? It's all these things that we can kind of do, but maintain the guise of being a decent enough person. Yeah, I can gossip about someone, but I'm a good person. I'm just trying to let you know what's going on in their life. Yeah, I can be really demeaning and cruel and unkind to the people in my life, whether to their face or behind their backs, but I'm just a blunt person. That's just how I roll. I can be really unkind and cutting. I can be boastful. I can be in love with money. 
I can think about and, and talk about and just be obsessed with how much money I make, but don't worry, I tithe, so it's, so it's not a big deal. That list is a bunch of things that could kill our apprenticeship to Jesus if we're not careful. And then verse 5, look at what it says. They hold to a form of godliness but deny its power. How many of us have a form of godliness? We've slapped the label Christian on ourselves. We've slapped the right couple of theological phrases or Christian buzzwords into our lives, but we have a complete denial of the Holy Spirit's power in our life. Moses looks at God and he says, you might have power over creation, over the Nile. You might have power over Egypt, the snake. You might even have power to heal me, God. But here's the deal. Your power is not enough for my failure. Your power is not enough for my insufficiency. Your power is not enough for my sin. Your power is not enough for my struggle. Sorry, God. It's just not going to work with me. I remember in my counselor's office one time, we were walking through this stuff and, and I was really stuck on this idea of I'm not enough and God can't forgive me and, and, and I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. I'm just not good enough. And, and my counselor looked at me and, and he said, would you ever say that to one of the students in your youth ministry? I kind of shook my head and I was like, well, no, I would never say that to them. And, and he said, well, why not? And I said, well, because I believe that they're made in the image of God and God loves them and God's doing something in their lives. And he said this really interesting thing. He said, then why don't you believe that about yourself? Why can't you believe that God could do in your life what you believe and have seen him do in other people's lives? That's my question for you today. Do you believe in the power of God to heal and redeem and restore the places in your life, to press into the things that you have pushed to the side to heal and restore? Pete Scazzaro, the author of Emotionally Healthy Spirituality, which is a book that I think every Christian who wants to follow Jesus in an emotionally mature way should read, says this, new fruit demands new roots. You cannot take apples and staple them to a tree and expect them to be healthy. If you want a tree to be healthy, you must understand what is happening at the root system. Here's the invitation of the gospel to you today. God can and will the most will restore the most broken parts of our lives and our stories if we let him go there. Listen to what he does for Moses. Exodus 4:15. Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he's on his way to meet you. So God already knew this was going to be the path with Moses in his sovereignty. God's not just shaping Moses' story, shaping Aaron's story too. He's, hey, he's already on the way. I've already got this covered. And then listen to this. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and you will tell him what to say. I will help both you and him speak and will teach and Pardon me. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him. God's response to Moses' inability to do it alone is not to make Moses more awesome. It's not to say, okay, your struggle, your pain, the, the thing you feel insecure about is gone. It's to say, no, Moses, I'm going to place you in community because you're going to do this with someone. Your brother Aaron's on the way and he's going to rejoice when he sees you. He calls Moses into a relationship in which he can press into what God is calling them to do together. The number one indicator of those who heal from past trauma that's been found in studies is not who gets the most counseling. It's not how big or how small the trauma is. The number one indicator that shows how well people heal from trauma is the level of health in which the relationships they exist in. Do they have healthy community to process that pain? Do they have people who are trustworthy to share and confess their sins, to share and confess what's been done to them and how they need prayer and how they need support? I remember with three friends, David, Brayden, and Justin, we did this exercise called the Genogram where we walked through all the pain of our family of origin. We looked at generational sin. We looked at consistent struggle. We looked at narratives we believe, like the one I told you about earlier, this idea that I'm not enough because I didn't make a basketball team. And we did that every week on Thursday nights at 8 p.m. We'd go get poutine and we'd talk about the most broken parts of our lives. If I did that alone, I would have been crushed. I would have been depressed and discouraged and overwhelmed all the time. But you know what changed everything? 
Being able to share those things and having three people who love me look at me and say, you are loved by Jesus. You are forgiven for your sin and he is doing a work in you anew. Community is the place where we can surrender to God's will for our lives. I wonder how long had it been since Moses saw Aaron? How long had it been since Moses even thought about Aaron? Moses, I wonder if he ever had the idea that he would get to reconnect with his brother or if he had long abandoned the idea that God could heal that. Because Aaron was his brother, but it's been 40 years and I've been on the run and, and what is it going to be? But God says, Aaron's coming and he will rejoice when he sees you. God brings them into community. And then listen to this last verse, Exodus 4:17. And take this staff, God said to Moses, in your hand that you will perform the signs with. Go back to Egypt, Moses. I've heard all your concerns. I've heard all your questions. You're going. But take this staff and take Aaron. Go with God and go in community. God is calling us where we need to go. Go back to Egypt. Face the people who rejected you. Face the nation you ran away from. Face the Pharaoh who holds this power over you but doesn't hold any power over Yahweh. Go with Aaron and go with God. God is calling Moses into true freedom. Exodus is about an exit from slavery into freedom. There is a difference between running away and experiencing true freedom. And what I want you to know today is God is calling you into freedom. Galatians chapter 5 verse 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. That's the truth over your life today. For freedom Christ has set you free. Stand firm therefore and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. Do not be a slave to your past. Do not be a slave to your sin. Do not allow the pharaohs or the Egypts in your life that have spoken things over you, that have hurt you, that have control over you. Don't let them compare to the power of God to work and move in your life. They don't have any power where Jesus is. Grab the snake by the tail. God is more powerful. Look and see how God can heal the trauma that's not just out there, but in your life. Trust that the Holy Spirit Spirit, in his sovereignty, in his goodness, in his grace, is at work in you today. You're not done following Jesus. Don't tap out. Don't tap out. Don't settle for a fake, false, phony version of Christianity. It's not what God has called us to. We are to experience God, godliness that is not devoid of the power of God. And the power of God is made manifest in this truth as we wrap up. It's made manifest in the truth of Jesus Christ who lived a perfect, sinless life and went to the cross on our behalf that all the sin that we've done and all the sin that's been done to us and all our pain and all our trauma that we know about and that we've buried in our subconscious could be redeemed and restored and he laid down his life willingly. But more than that, he rose again. Jesus rose victorious over sin and Satan and death, which means Jesus stands victorious over Moses' story, which means Jesus stands victorious over Israel's story, which means Jesus stands victorious over your story. Stop discounting the power of God in your story. Jesus has the resurrection power to stand victorious in your story, no matter what your story is. He's going to redeem Moses' failures and shortcomings and use him to lead the kingdom, the people of God, out into the wilderness where they're called to go. The gospel is not good news because it is a story that has no bad news. It is good news because it is a story of how Jesus restores and heals everything through his death on the cross and through his power in the resurrection. That is what the gospel is about. And through the power of the resurrection, Jesus can bring freedom to our stories. Jesus can bring freedom if we let him poke and prod where it hurts and trust that Jesus is our great physician who loves us and will not hurt us, but will heal us. We can cling to this blood-purchased promise of the gospel that Henry Nouwen communicates so beautifully. Here's what he writes in his book, The Wounded Healer. Our master is coming, not tomorrow, but today, not next year, but this year, not after our misery is past, but in the middle of it, not in another place, but right here where we are standing. 
And now we're going to enter into a time of communion. And as we enter into this time of communion, we remember. We remember what God has done for us in Jesus, and we remember how God has broken into our stories, just like he broke into Moses' story. We remember how he is healed. We remember how he is restored in his life, in his death, and in his resurrection. But we remember not as a habit or a religious duty, but with what Paul calls in 1 Corinthians 11, the examination of our souls. Let me read this passage to you. Really interesting passage. Verse 27, So then, Paul writes, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sin against the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine him or herself. In this way, let him eat and drink from the cup. For whoever eats and drinks without recognizing the body eats and drinks judgment on ourself. As we enter into communion, we have to examine ourselves. We can't just go through the motions. We can't just go, well, yeah, we've got a little cup. We've got a little wafer. This is what we do once a month. We have to examine ourselves. It's a command in Scripture. Lest we drink judgment on ourselves. So let us now, as those, if you have made a profession of faith, if you have decided that you want to follow Jesus, whether you've declared that in baptism or you still need to declare that in baptism, let us examine our lives not in self-judgment, not in condemnation. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, but rather as an invitation of the Holy Spirit to heal those parts of ourselves we keep hidden. Those parts of ourselves we keep hidden from the world, from ourselves, and we think we can keep hidden from God. Let us examine ourselves and allow the great physician to heal. Here's what, what we do as we practice communion. For I received the Lord, what I also passed on to you. On the night he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Let us remember what Jesus paid that we might be redeemed. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And he said, this cup is the new covenant of my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us remember the blood-bought new covenant that you and I have been brought into freedom with. Let's drink of the cup together. Lord Jesus, we examine ourselves before you today. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to show us those places in our lives we have not yet submitted to you. Those places in our lives we'd rather keep hidden. Those places in our lives we don't want to go back to. Those pharaohs and those Egypts and those failures and those sins that, that just rack us with guilt and shame. Lord Jesus, we invite you to bring your healing work there right now. And as we reflect on your bloodshed, on your body broken, we remember, Lord Jesus, that you did not stay dead. And that in victorious freedom, you have risen again and that you are seated at the right hand of God right now. We celebrate, King Jesus, that you are our Lord who has set us free. Might we live into that freedom today. We love you, Jesus, as we close in worship. We remember, we rejoice, and we reflect on how you have set us free and how you continue to set us free today and every day from now until you call us home. It's in your name we pray these things, Lord Jesus. Amen.